Dystopia. According to the dictionary, it's a word that means a community or society that is in some way, in, in some important way, undesirable or frightening. So I would say that James Siddle's book is very aptly named because, as it says on the cover, he fell from a glittering, glittering media career into a society described as sordid, shabine gutter, uh, with the Pandora's hope at the end and back again. Well, it's nothing if not a totally honest, warts and all tale of how James climbed quickly into the ranks of sought-after party boy journalism and fell eventually, and on more than one occasion, into enforced rehab. What a ride. Hi, James. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent, excellent. And I want to say in the words of one of your, one of the ladies who helped you out of a difficult spot, ach, no yes. man, James. <laughs> it was just, I think, I can't remember who it was. Was it Jody or somebody from... Caroline, who said, oh, jo no, Jerry, man, yeah, Jerry Duplessis, yeah. Well, when I got to the end of the book, I thought, oh, no, man, James. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> heard, yeah, yes, yes. Well, well done. Uh, it's the back again bit that I think that we really Nancy, need. Nancy, thank you so much. But, you know, at the risk of sounding like an, like an Oscar winner, um, I had a massive amount of help, a massive amount of help. Yes, you did, in fact, um, and I was quite surprised at where the, from whence the help was coming because there were times when your behaviour was not the sort of person that you'd really want to help, and yet people were there helping you. So um, They were, yeah, they were, so and the, the, most, the most unlikely people from um, my fellow drinkers at, at my favourite Shabine in a, in a KZN township to um, trained professionals. Yeah, yes, well... Whatever it was, it worked. And I'm not sure how many years it is now that you've been dry. Three, is it? I've been off alcohol for just over four. Okay, well, well done, because you've passed the what you describe in the book, and this is really like a sort of self-help book for alcoholics. Is it the two- to three-year period that's the most difficult? It's very hard to nail down exactly which period is the most difficult. Um, as a rule of thumb, once you've done five years, you're comparatively stable. It's, treat, treatment is very much long-term. Recovery is very much a long-term process. That's a physical thing. I suppose mentally uh, it may take a lot longer. And mentally, I suppose, could this possibly have been one of the reasons why you wrote the book, to get it out there, to get it out of you? Yes, it, the, the main reason I wrote Dystopia wasn't so much to provide um, sort of cheap thrills to other people, you know, mm. with stories of my buyings of, buyings of prostitutes and crashings of cars and things like that. It was more to deliver the message about about addiction, how you can get out of it, what I've learned about addiction. Yeah, and, and all those things, it certainly does. Thank I'm you. I'm going to sort of break it down into four parts, well, yes. probably many more. But I think let's first find out who you are, where you came from, what your origins are, and then your career, which was pretty meteoric, despite your sort of um, your brush with the, the military. Um, and then you're drinking, and then you're rehabilitation. I, that's probably not the best way, but I thought let, 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 let's no, sort of deal with it. So, so let's start. Lovely. Let's start with who you are. You're a Hillcrest boy. Yes, I'm very much a Hillcrest boy. I like saying that I've I've been to Hillcrest Primary, Hillcrest High School, Hillcrest Rehab, which is really a Caroline Crisis Centre, although it's strictly speaking now a halfway house. And unfortunately, um, Hillcrest SAPS holding cells more than once. So you've you've been around. You could safely say that you've earned yourself the freedom of Hillcrest. <laughs> Thank you. And your background, um, it's it was really interesting to read your the early chapters. You know, the the your, oh, your mum, your dad. Well, it's always interesting to know where people have come from, to know where they've how they've got to where they are. You know, good, bad, or indifferent. 
And it has to be said, it wasn't an easy ride when you were a kid. I think you'll tell us a little well, bit about your... E- easy ride is very much a, compar- a comparative or relative thing. Mm. Um, I was born into a middle-class family. We lived in West. We lived in Westville, and this was early 1970s. So, like all, like most white middle-class families at the time, mom didn't work, dad went to work. We had two, perhaps three servants, two cars. What I didn't know, and only discovered years and years later, was that my father was a chronic alcoholic. Even when he died, when I was seven, I was told that he died of a heart attack because he died, although he died of cirrhosis of the liver. Because alcoholism was such a deeply disgraceful, shameful, unspeakable thing. Yes, indeed. And no more is it now. I mean, no less is it now. It's just, I suppose it would have been less discussed. But it's interesting because you didn't know that when you were a kid. But No, it, I didn't. On... I, just, I just knew that, that life as a child was very, was, was, was far from placid. Um, my mother married, uh, divorced before, just before my father died, divorced him, um, remarried, and then remarried again. Yes, neither of neither of which were terribly successful marriages. No, they were they, they, they were they were stupendous failures. Both, but but your dad, shame, I you know your dad was a sorry character, and I think it's only as you um, in your adulthood or in your later years that you've looked back on him and you've been mm. able to sort of see my, where he was coming from. Yeah, my my dad I always remember, and anecdotes from the rest of the family bear this out as a very gentle, confused, mostly drunk man. Um, if he was alive now, I'm 44. If he was alive, he'd be in his late 80s. He, he had me very late. And um, he served in World War II in the British Army, starting at the age, of, I think, 18 or 19 in Burma. And I'm convinced he had some form of PTSD, although in those days mm-hmm. it was very much a case of stiff upper lip and psychological debriefings and things were absolutely unheard of. Mm, post-traumatic stress disorder yes yes absolutely but um you know i suppose there is a little bit of a clue there you know it's often said that alcoholism whether or not it's a disease whatever and you argue that point in the book uh to an extent you know do you lay any blame there do you i mean not that you're blaming no, your I, dad but... I, I, I don't really lay any blame there although um research into into addiction and i include i include alcohol alcoholism and addiction alcohol is just another drug um is, impro- is, is coming on in leaps and bounds. And I think it's the American Psychiatric Association has put, has put, the, um, has put the genetic link to alcoholism at as high as 60%. Mm. Gosh. That, mean, that means the predisposition towards alcoholism. Okay, let's let's uh, move on. I'm just looking at the clock, thinking, hmm, we've got three more parts to get through here. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's, <laughs> let's go back to your career because it, given that it was, you know, certainly not a placid, as you call it, uh, childhood. Um, you moved out of it. You moved into the army. You moved out of the yes, army. Just tell I, I, us I about moved that. Into the army. I guess I can just say a word there. Um, I was posted to the absolutely hilariously named Saints, which is South African Intelligence School in 1988. Yes. I don't think the irony of that acronym has been fully explored. Well, I think you've done your best. <laughs> but uh, certainly there were no halos there, and you removed, no, your, you removed yourself. And I think you, actually for some time afterwards, you were always a little bit afraid about the military police coming knocking on your door. Oh, no, I, was, I, was, I joined the inconscription campaign, and um, half, of, half of the people in the in- in conscription campaign were convinced I was still in military intelligence, but anyway. 
And um, for years, I just I used to get call-ups, and I used to just throw them in the rubbish bin, and I just used to wait for the military police to arrive. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary. And then came your your career, which was quite quickly glittering, but it, it did take a while before it got there. It was a little bit sort of liquid as well. But just, yes. just tell us about your career, because you were quite a bookish young boy. Uh, yes, to... I, I, my, my two stepfathers, who were very much, very much sort of rambunctious, bombastic alpha males, or would-be alpha males, who, who glorified things like working with your hands and despised bookworms and things. Um, always used to label me as a bookworm. I was a bookish child. At 19, I got my first job on the Zululand Observer as a very junior reporter. And I think that was only because no graduates wanted to be posted to Zululand. I worked there for about six months. Then I got a job on the Leader, which is a, a defunct uh, newspaper. But at the time, it was a very left-wing, very radical Indian-owned newspaper in Durban. And from between about 1989 and, oh, I think, early 1991, during the time which the ANC and other movements were unbanned, um, I got very involved in political writing from a, from a very sort of left-wing point, for want of a better term. Mm. And it was, it, was, it was fascinating meeting so many of the, of the just-freed ANC leadership who, who then were operating out of NGO offices and certainly didn't have chauffeur-driven Mercedes and bodyguards yeah. and things. Yeah, it was all very different. In fact, it's quite interesting reading your book, uh, sort of reminding oneself how things were. And looking back, one of the things that you you eventually yeah. went on to was to Scope magazine, which yeah, is, is definitely right. no more. And I mean, some people will remember Scope and sort of go, other <laughs> people won't remember it at all. How did you get into Scope and what were you actually doing there? Okay, Scope was called the Boerder Playboy. It was, it's one of its more polite alternative titles. Um, I got a job on Scope at 21 as a, as a features writer. Um, I was basically doing rewrites, doing, doing, doing rewrites of features, writing puff pieces on girls with large breasts. Then I moved into motoring um, in 1994. Just before the general elections, I went on roadshow with Nelson Mandela and the ANC and F.W. de Klerk and the National Party, which is a very, very memorable, very explosive, explosive time to be a journalist. Mm. I stayed there on scope until 1995, end of 1995. I got a job on play. I got approached by Playboy South Africa. And I moved up to Johannesburg and became their deputy editor. And that really was just more of the same as, as Scope. Yeah. You kind of lived the brand. It was a hard-drinking, macho, hard-drinking, macho environment. Womanizing was celebrated. Um, yeah. Long, long, expense account lunches were glorified. Absolutely, macho motoring and misogyny. I would say would be. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a lovely title for my next book. Yes, well, there you go. You could have that one. But uh, interesting, uh, when you were on the ANC and the National Party Roadshow, one of your fellow colleagues said, what the mm, is Scope doing here? And, and I thought that was quite telling because, you know, what... Well, well remembered. Yes, yes. Well, well, it was quite a memorable sort of a phrase. But I did think, you know, what was Scope doing there? What was Scope? Scope, scope? A, scope, scope um, if, you look beyond, if you look beyond the, the half-naked and eventually-naked girls, had a very serious journalistic side or ran some very serious thought-provoking, incisive journalism, as did Playboy. Yeah, so it wasn't all what, what, what it was sometimes um, sort of labelled to, to be. 
the, then you moved into Playboy. I'm sort of rattling yes. through your career quite qu quickly, but as did no, you. Um, so once you got into Playboy, that's where I mean, and your 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 wild ways were hugely celebrated. I mean, you had a wicked pen. You had a you were able to sort of make light and and I think as you call it, sneer at people in a masterly way. Uh, thank but, you. But well, that, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, if indeed it's a, a compliment, but I suppose it is because it's a very entertaining. But that was when the drinking began, or when it no, started Nancy, to escalate. No, the drinking, I was, I was always a comparatively light drinker, even by peer standards. Up until the age of about 21, when I joined Scope and um, discovered that the, the long drunken company lunch, ideally on expense account, was just a, was an absolute holy sacrament. And if you could get back to the office after a four-hour lunch of beer and tequila and still work, it, that was just, that was really to be celebrated. So even by the time I arrived at Playboy, um, I was drinking. I was drinking very heavily. Mm. And nobody, I mean, in those days, in these days, you know, sometimes people sort of, you know, titter behind their hands at work and say, "Well, you know, it's one of those things." Did nobody say anything, or, or it not almost seems to be encouraged? Environment, no. Um, there, there, there were. I know. I know a couple of a couple of scandalized whisp, scandalized uh, whispers going on in the background. But, from from mm. non from people outside my work environment, but I just ignored them. Hmm. One of the words you used earlier was it was really memorable. And reading through the book, I think how did you remember any of this? Because the blackout, the great darkness, uh, the, as you describe it, you know, the blackouts, the, the sort of complete. I don't I have no idea what happened last night. Sort of situation. How did you how did you remember anything to write this book? And how did you manage to work? Um. I my, my drinking, my drinking was heavy, but it wasn't um, catastrophic by the mm. time I was at Playboy. So I was able to function fairly well. I was I was essentially what's termed a high functioning alcoholic. It was only post Playboy that things like um, visits to holding cells for being drunk in public, severe car crashes, um, many many visits to psychiatric wards, rehabs, that sort of thing started. Who was there to pick up the pieces? I mean, all of those things that you've mentioned. And, and as you said right at the beginning, there were a lot of people who came to your rescue. There was a, a chain of no-name girlfriends who were given names like Rich Chick. Oh, yes, and... I, 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 have, I have, have had a, a chain, of, chain of invariably lovely girlfriends, lo lovely as people. And um, I've just, just scandalized them and exhausted their, emo their emotional resources with my behavior. Were you, I mean, is, is remorse something that you can remember feeling? Short-lived remorse, Nancy. Um, you know, perhaps waking up and waking up in the morning with a, with a terrible hangover, and knowing you've done something terrible the night, equally terrible the mm -hmm. night before. Um, the remorse might have lasted a day or two, but it wasn't. It wasn't long-lasting. Mm. And just going back to the memory thing, I, I suppose with your work, and you have, you've peppered the. Um, uh, uh, or sort of flavoured the book with some pieces from your your previous writings. Did it help? You know, reading back those bits of writing. Did it help? Sort of bring it all flooding back. It very much did. Mm. It very much did. The other, the other. I mean, we talk about the sort of the shabin, the sordid shabin gutter. I mean, at one time you were living in what you describe as your kaya. Uh, just tell us about that era. Okay. Um, just prior to my kaya, I had I had left Playboy and I'd unwisely moved back to Durban. And I say unwisely because there were, post-Playboy, there were quite a few nice opportunities in Johannesburg that I could have, could have taken. 
But I moved back to Durban. Um, with re- looking back, it's probably probably just so I could carry on drinking in an un- uninterrupted way. Um, just prior to moving to my little Kai, I was living in a living in a large rented townhouse in Durban's Musgrave Road, which is a nice a nice shady genteel road. I rapidly started running out of money, and an old school friend. I've got a number of close old school friends who've been so absolutely brilliant over the years offered me a what was euphemistically termed a garden cottage mm. on his property outside Hillcrest. So I moved there and I did something that I'm very, very good at, and that's new beginnings, right? I'm going to stop drinking and get my life together and all that. And um, I rapidly discovered that an African township, I'm not sure what the politically correct term is, started just started just two kilometers away from my little Kaya, and it had several shabins and... I latched onto a favourite Shabin and would spend would spend whole days drinking there from five a.m. when it opened onwards. Mm. Your body's really been through it. Yes, it has. Mm. I've, it has. I've, I've done done a number of hospital visits to medical wards for detoxes, and perhaps 50, it's very blurry, Nancy. But fifteen, maybe twenty psychiatric ward visits. Yes, and and eventually enforce rehabilitation because it's often said That's that correct. you know you can't make somebody go to a rehab centre; they've got to want to go. But in your case, I think there was it was there were no options. As far as far as I remember, from a very very blur, I, I did a couple of voluntary rehabs. Half when I say voluntary, I went in ostensibly on a voluntary basis, but more, it was more to keep everyone quiet and to let all the noise die down. And um, eventually, when I was living in Hillcrest. My, I'd say addiction culminated with me having a terrible drunken fall at home, a medical chopper landing in the field next door to my place, me getting um, taken to hospital, whether I was airlifted or whether the personnel from from the medical chopper just attended to me, I, I have still have no idea. I came out of ICU and I carried on drinking. And then um, Caroline Crisis Center in Hillcrest, which is operated under absolutely remarkable woman called Joey Duplessis. They got a number of affidavits from people in, in the Hillcrest community saying I'm a danger to myself and others, and I was served with a two-year sentence to rehab. You, how did, at risk of sounding like a your therapist here, how did that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> at, at first, I was very angry, mm. and. Um, I did. A, I still. Ma- I managed to do quite appallingly in rehab, and then after after about three months, I actually managed to relapse in the rehab, such, such as my lack of commitment to to getting better. Then after after about three months, after yet a, yet another spell in a psychiatric ward, following an aborted suicide attempt, um, I decided to try recovery, and I tried to do it properly, and I began to enjoy my time at Caroline so much so. Even today, I keep very, very close links with Caroline. Mm. You know, because of the way you write and because of uh, the, you know the, your the, your sort of wit, there's a there's a oh, line. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Nancy. Very kind there's of you. a line between shameful and proud of it. In fact, somewhere in the book, you refer to that. You know, there comes a point in one's drinking when you stop boasting about or you know bragging about how much you can take, and then you become secret about it. Do, do you know what yes, I mean? Very much so. How how do you deal with that? With the shame. Mm. Um. 
Nancy, I, I'm a Christian, a, a very, very flawed Christian. And trust me when I say flawed, I'm not using that as I'm not using using that as verbal padding. Um, I do do know that God has that God has forgiven me for all the things I have done. So that's and that that is the most important yeah, thing to me. Yeah, a, I don't lead a, I don't lead a blameless life still, but I do know that I've been forgiven. It's very tempting to say, was it God who helped you out of this? Because you know, you you um, in little bit by bit, you sort of describe the the process of becoming an alcoholic, and I think within it there are. Is it four horsemen you describe? The, yes, the four horsemen of uh, apocalypse. Uh, who are those four horsemen? Terror, bewilderment, and I can't remember the other two offhand. Well, I've got the book I, here. I really, I I really do think through. I have short-term memory. Yes. Well, I'm not surprised. Um, are you, do you, is that an issue? No, no, no. I, I, I'm being a little bit facetious. Yeah, my, yeah. my, my recall seems, generally seems okay. I just can't remember who the four horsemen of apocalypse are. It's, it's somewhere in this book, and I think I, I marked it, but I, if I can find it, I will get there. <laughs> so so the four horsemen were there at your side. But it just, and I'm, yeah, now let, let, me, let me stay with this point. And the point being, what was it? I mean, after all those people said, for goodness sake, put the man away, he's a danger to himself and to everybody else, what was it that finally got you through? Because you weren't, as you say, you weren't committed. But what was it that turned things around? I finally decided to apply myself to recovery. There was there was no massive epiphany. I just I just slowly began to realise that that it would be a very good idea to try to try really try from deep within to recover. So it was. It was. There was something that said, "Okay, I'm going to do this." Just going back to you being a high-functioning yes. alcoholic. Interesting yes. to see that. I think uh, certainly on on two occasions you ran the comrades. That's correct. Yes, in um, my twenties. And and rather sadly, later I think you pawned the medals, didn't you? To, That's to correct. Make some I money. Oh dear, oh dear. Did, at what point? At what point were you not able to do those sort of things? I'd say by my late by my late twenties, I, I became. I, I was. Well, on my way to becoming a non-functioning alcoholic, alcoholism, unlike many other forms of addiction, has quite a long gestation period. In other words, the, the the period between when you first start drinking to the period where you become non-functioning or you enter what's termed the the pre-fatal stage, which is the last stage, can take years and years, as it did in my case. With other addictions, for example. Um, which is crystal, crystal methamphetamine, or crack cocaine. Those can take you down from literally from the day you start to the day that you have nothing. Can take six months. Mm. Alcohol has a long take, takes a long time. Yeah, and it, I think um, alcohol came together with what do you call them? Benzos. Benzodiazepines. Yeah. Um, most people will know them best as Valium, but it covers a huge. A huge number of tra uh, tranquilizers and sleeping tablets. So, hence, the, when you went into the rehab centres, first you had to detox. Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. You know, acting as milestones throughout the book are dogs, cars, and girlfriends. We sort of dealt with that. <laughs> we dealt with the girlfriends who were unbelievably um, helpful, though most often they sort of uh, disappeared off the off the uh, certainly off your radar. Yes, the they, they, they kind of kind of reached. If I, can, if I can just say, they kind of reached emotional fatigue or or donor fatigue, for want of a better word. They just all reached a point where they just couldn't put up with us anymore. Have they emerged since the uh, since the publication of your book? No, not really. Mm. 
Mm. Well, no, I, I think I think I think I think the book the book might have scandalised me more than ever because I had a secret, I had a well hidden addiction to buying prostitutes as well. Yeah. Would you like to say anything to them if they're listening? Would you like to make a public apology? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think this is this is quite. It, before, it might not be the moment. Th- th- it th- might th- not be you, the thank moment. Thank you so much, Nancy. <laughs> yes. It's not that I don't feel that they owed an apology. Yeah. I just yeah. would would prefer to do it on a more yeah. personal, intimate yes, level. I think, I think but thank you so much for that opportunity. Absolutely. But cars and dogs. Let's deal with the cars because you were a motoring writer, and you. I'm still very much a motoring mm, writer. Mm. And um, there were times when actually you weren't able to you weren't able to drive anywhere because you just weren't able to so i mean you you became quite conscious quite quickly of drunk driving and that that wasn't going to get you around but you know the book is marked by what you were driving the color of the car the make of the car and i thought how do you remember all the, all that cars are very big in your life <laughs> just like some people might might remember certain certain moments or days or episodes by what music was playing i remembered by what car i was driving i'm still very lucky to be a member of the south african guild of motoring journalists which in itself has been very supportive to me during uh, through some dark hours. And um, I still, on a weekly basis, have two, perhaps three, test cars, which which kind of rotate weekly. Mm. Gosh, wonderful. And the dogs. Um, ah, the dogs. Yes. As we talk, I've got Milo on my lap. He's, a, he's ostensibly a Jack Russell, but he's definitely crossed with something fluffy. I think a pim... A pim Pomeranian, is that it? Pomer- Pomeranian, is it? Po- Pomeranian, yes, yeah. Pomeranian. Um, he's, he's sitting on my lap right now as we talk. I adopted him as an unwanted puppy, and I often think he... I got him with the name Milo, and I often think he should have been called Benzo, because I was taking such <laughs> scandalous amounts of benzodiazepines at the time that I adopted him. Gosh, I, I mean... We laugh now, but it's it's a book. It that wasn't funny at it the was time, you know. Totally yeah. not funny. Mm. Anybody who glorifies um, late stage addiction is is essentially lying. Yeah. It's late stage late stage addiction or pre, or addiction at the pre fatal stage is Nancy. It is invariably. It doesn't matter on the drug. It doesn't depend. The, the drug is, is is immaterial. It is dirty. It is degrading. It is sordid. You are permanent unless you are absolutely paralytic on your drug of choice, you are permanently paralyzed with fear. Mm. It's a cautionary tale indeed, and journalism and alcohol sort of kind of go hand in hand, or they certainly have. I don't what know. I've no, what I've noticed now, Nancy, is that um the new breed of journalists is does does seem to be a lot do seem to be a lot more health conscious and they do seem to drink less. The the day the days of the days of the sort of the day the days of the hoary old sub editor or commissioning editor or news editor keeping a half jack of vodka in his top drawer I think are pretty much yeah, over. Yeah, and sort of journalism is becoming quite corporatized now. Drying up, let's see. Drying which up, is, yes. which is a good thing. Do you hope ultimately? I mean, two things. Has the book helped you actually physically writing the book? And do you hope that the book will help anybody else? Um, it has it has helped me in that it was a cathartic experience, and I think it has helped a number of people. Um, I'm very easy to find. You just Google James Siddle Dystopia or James Siddle Writer, and my contact details pop up. And I've had a lot of feedback from people, people, people in South Africa, people in the UK, people in New Zealand, people in America. Uh, the the print version of the book isn't available outside South Africa, but you can get it as an ebook or via Amazon. 
Hmm. And it's also caused you to start a new one. I don't know. This That's book is correct. Mm. It has. The, the, new book, the new book is far more reflective than um, Dystopia. Its title is Trazodone Dreams. Trazodone is an antidepressant that also helps induce sleep. Okay, well, it sounds like there's a whole other story there. Can we expect that any time soon, or are you still working through it? No, I'm still working on it. I tentatively expect it will be published 2015. Well, I wish you every success with it, James. And in the meantime, I think that you're also doing sort of um, media consultation as well, so that's part of your... I do do media consulting, which is really a very very fancy, revved-up term for PR. Last question... Do you miss the all the things that were part of your addiction? Do you, do you miss that lifestyle? No, I don't. I don't miss the lifestyle of late addiction. Sometimes I have just this like little atavistic twinge for the lifestyle I was living in my early to in my in my late teens to to mid twenties. Well, I think we could safely say that you've been there and you've done it, and it's behind you. So maybe there are all sorts. Hopefully, of Nancy. Hopefully, good things but, ahead. But addiction, as as Alcoholics Anonymous likes to say, is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah, the world is full of people who have been clean 15, 20 years and they've decided to have a glass of wine with dinner and a day later they're puking in the gutter. Oh, yeah. Oh, no man, James, is where I, go. I end where I started. <laughs> Thank you so much. Very best Thank of luck with the next lovely, book. Really lovely chatting to you. Great. Good luck. Take Thank care. Thank you so much. Thanks a Bye-bye lot. Then. James Siddle and his book, once again, it's called Dystopia, From Glittering Media Career to Sordid Shabin Gutter and Back Again, and that's the important book. And it's published, incidentally, by MF Books in Johannesburg, MF standing for Melinda Ferguson, if I'm not mistaken, and she also would know a thing or two about addiction. Fascinating book, and uh, if you'd like to find out a little bit more, just Google James Siddle, that's uh, S-I-D-D-A-L-L, James Siddle, and Dystopia and he will pop up. There you go. Stay tuned. You're listening to SFM Literature.